0: This is episode 53 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the co founder and CEO of Million Dollar Scholar, Darius Quarles. Let's get it started. Just get started. Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to have you here for another episode where I sit down with Darius Quarles, who is the co-founder and CEO of Million Dollar Scholar, um, also started Bro Capital, um, as well as some other endeavors he's involved with. But he shares a, a really incredible story of his upbringing, you know, how he was in foster care and, and ultimately got out of that. Um, you know, how he was awarded over a million dollars in scholarship money to go to college and how he propelled that into, you know, writing a book and starting a business with it um, and doing obviously what he's doing today with a variety of different things. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Darius Quirles. Let's get it started. Darius, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate
0: you. Man, I'm excited to get to talk with you because, you know, and you're, and you're 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 not old by any stretch of the imagination so <laughs> all that you've accomplished kind of in this short time frame is is really um really powerful to hear i'm really excited for you to share your story with everyone and um, i wanted to take um kind of from the beginning if we could because one of the things that w- is really impressive is that you know your upbringing and the things that you had to endure early on in your life and and how that's helped propel you i wanted to start there if, if you could at least share that story a little bit of you know, kind of growing up in foster care, you know, in Chicago, how you kind of, I guess on a couple parts, if you can take it, one is how you got through that, you know, maybe if there was some self-talk as you grew up, how were you able to stay kind of motivated and, and positive through that experience? Um, and then, and then secondly, how did you kind of get out of that? Uh, maybe that others go in a different direction and were able to stay, did you have good mentors? Did you have people that were at least around you to help you out as you grew up, so you can kind of take it as you want um whichever you want to start off with,
1: yeah, definitely and it it is such a long story that that one question can literally take up all our time, so you know I am gonna try my best to you know give a powerful answer with within you know a like truncated version, but um grew up on the south side of Chicago, born and raised um I definitely remember it as a time where, you know, my youngest memory, when I looked around at, you know, the majority of people around me, I definitely could sense that, um, you know, struggle was just normal. Um, Struggle, whether that be, you know, financially struggling, um, sort of spiritually struggling or psychologically struggling, I think that that was something that was – Think for a lot of the people around me something that was so normalized and you know, folks were used to that you know i don't think they would describe it as abnormal in any way i think it was just you know life saying you you make the best of that and you attempt to find times to gather and smile and um just keep keep each other encouraged within that so that, that's something that i definitely observed um within You know, my childhood environment, even though, objectively speaking, um, it was difficult and we were poor and we, um, most of my family members were uneducated and we were, you know, in a section of the city where, you know, there was a definitely a high amount of policing, high amount of violence, high amount of, you know, drugs being sold, used, so on and so forth. And sort of the way that impacted my life in a very direct manner was that, um, you know, my father was a very well-known drug dealer, on the south side of Chicago. Um, and that's how he made his living. Um, and from from my account of the, the stories that I've been told, it was a very good living that he was able to, you know, make for, for himself through that, but it wasn't sustainable, right? So during the, during the highest peak, you know, he you know had a great life, but for him, that ended with his death. He was um killed on the south side of Chicago, trying to break up a fight interestingly enough and um you know that was that's that's pretty much where the story starts like it would i would you know definitely start there, and you know my father's death changed the tra- definitely changed the trajectory of my life my older brother's life um it had a deep impact. On the rest of my family, because what that meant was, you know, the breadwinner, the person who could be counted on financially, was taken away abruptly. And so, you know, we were already struggling. We already had all types of hardships, and then for that to happen, right, for him to be murdered, that um that sent things into sort of a, a spiral and, and had all type of ripple effects. And one of those being that shortly after his death, my mother. Actually developed a, an addiction um, and with that drug addiction came all types of other issues, one of them really being that you know she wasn't really fit to take care of two very young children. you know her her mental state wasn't one where she could prioritize those children and at the age that we were, you know that's a that's a very, very critical age, four or five years old. You know, you, you need your parents, you need your mother It's a, in, in a very, very deep way because you cannot take care of yourself. No matter how hard you would try, it's, it's impossible for you to really take care of yourself. So during that time, my older brother actually, at nine years old, you know, showed an extreme amount of leadership and shielded me in a lot of ways. If I was by myself during that period in time, I don't think I would have survived. Um, I can't imagine it, you know, what that would have looked like if I did have to go at like that alone. Luckily for me, from a very young age, I had a guardian angel, and that was my, my older brother at the time, who was nine years old, when um, sort of my mother first began showing the symptoms of, of addiction. And so he covered me, and, you know, he made sure I got to school on time. Um, when there was no food in the refrigerator, you know, he was just an innovative thinker. I guess what you would call a street-smart young boy who, you know, found ways to make sure we could eat and found ways to make sure that, you know, we survived at minimum, you know, that it definitely was no way that we could thrive within that environment. But at minimum, he kept it so that, um, you know, it didn't seem to me as a young four- or five-year-old that, you know, we were struggling as much as we, in actuality, were. And the and the reason for that is because my brother kind of bared most of the burden at that time, and so that's something that I always reflect on is you know how much that impacted his life because you know him being nine years old, he saw and felt everything that was going on in a very different way than I did um, as a child.
0: So. It- did you, you know, guys stay with the same in in foster care? Did you go with the same kind of through the same foster care, or did you get split up, or how did how did that work?
1: We eventually did get split up before the majority of our years. You know, we were together. So, like during the beginning phase, you know, we stayed together. Our, our bond and relationship was uh, quite strong because of that experience that we had. We were, you know, one day police came and actually took us, and that was our introduction to foster care. Was being left alone in the home for a significant period of time, you know, DCFS being flagged or the department of children and family services being flagged on that. And then we were taken out. And then we, once we transitioned to foster care, we spent the rest of our uh, youthhood in foster care. So it was never something where like we, you know, after our first placement that we ever went back to sort of a normal kind of living environment or, you know, a, a normal arrangement. So I spent after being taken into foster care at four years old. I spent the next fourteen years in foster care, um at a number of different placements, number of different environments, number of different people. So I, you know, I I like to say that I I've seen the gamut of what foster care looks like for the average youth in America. Right, there's all different types of placements you have. Um, you, have, you can live with family. You have a, a traditional foster home, living with foster parents. You have short-term arrangements where you're living in some form of a of a shelter or a short-term housing, you know, paid for by the government. Um, and you also have, you know, you have foster youth who are living independently, like they're living on their own. Throughout those 14 years, I experienced all of those different types of placements, besides, of course, being adopted, which is another form of fostering as well as you know, actually being with an adoptive family. That, that's the only one that I didn't experience. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of different experiences, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different types of people. And uh, within that though, it's 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 fascinating because you do get exposed to all of these different environments and all of these different types of people. But you, you start to see that there's a red thread that kind of connects them all. And how I would describe the fostering experience is one of, um, it, it just feels like nobody sort of gets it. You know, as as much as they would like to or, you know, you would hope they do, it's a very isolating experience. Like no matter how nice the people are or no matter how nice the sort of environment is in terms of, you know, you have your basic needs, your food, your shelter, clothes, so on and so forth, all of that can be taken care of. But the trauma that one has went through it, it, when they're that young and they're taken away from, you know, their parents or their parents are taken away, you know, from them in, in some way, um, natural or unnatural. It's it's something where what you're really missing and what you need is love and, you know, a whole lot of compassion um, and a whole lot of empathy, a whole lot of understanding. And I think that more often than not, That's the deficit that people have. Like, you know, they only have enough empathy for themselves. They only have enough compassion for, like, their close family members. It takes a very special person or very special people to give, you know, a foster child in that type of situation, like, what they need, what they really, really need emotionally uh, to get over what has happened. And um, that's sort of how I would describe the majority of my years within foster care in terms of how I got through it. Because, you know, a number of those years, you know, it's no other way to put it. Very depressing, like very negative, um, you know, observed things that you would very quickly say that no child deserves to to see those things. And, um, you know, you wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, how to get through that, it does require a significant level of um just understanding that this is these are not your decisions. Like at a very young age, I had to come to understand that like I'm not in control of this right now. So, you know, I can be angry, I can I can fight, I can I can do a lot of different things that will cause all type of disruption and bring me attention or you know, but it, would that would that really change anything at the end of the day? Is this is this really a reflection on me? Or is this more so a reflection on you know the world that I'm living in or the people around me? And at a young age, I just came to that understanding that um, I'm not in control right now. So all I can really do is be the best at just kind of like being me and you know keeping my head low, not causing too many problems until the day comes that I am in control and I am able to make my own decisions. And for me, that age was around. I think when I finally developed a sliver of confidence, and now when I say sliver, I do mean sliver. I was 13 years old, and the story was that I had to actually run away from one of the foster homes that I was in um, because I was being physically abused. And The the thing, the tipping point in that story was that a, a, a drawer was thrown in my head, and I very it's very slightly missed me upon me ducking. So my reaction time was fast enough that it didn't hit me in my but if I didn't if I wouldn't have moved it would have done some serious damage and that was the moment where it's like I have to get out of here. Sort of survival mode kicked in and um I literally ran away moments after that happened. And you know, that was sort of the first decision in my life where I had like made a very tough decision and it was an it was very empowering for me, you know. Um and and from there, I think that was the sort of the first point where I realized that, you know, okay, I'm old enough to make my own decisions. And um, of course I'm not in control of everything, but I'm certainly not gonna allow anybody to oppress me anymore. I'm gonna I'm not gonna allow anybody to marginalize me from henceforth. Um and you can imagine um growing up within foster care, how often that happens, how often you will you will be silenced, how often. You just kind of have to go with the decisions of other people, even if those decisions are deleterious in some
0: type of way. Yeah, I I have to imagine that happens a lot. And so what did you you do then? Did you go live on your own? Did you find, you know, a friend or something? Where did you go?
1: So after running away, um, I actually, interestingly enough, got in contact with my mother, who then got in contact with my grandmother. Um, And and I'm old enough now where I could tell that story. But what's fascinating about that is at the time, I I couldn't actually tell the state of Illinois that I got in contact with my mother because, you know, she was not my legal guardian. Like it was, it was parameters around what could be done legally and what could not like. So even I wasn't even able to tell them that when they asked, so what happened next? What did you do next? I wasn't actually able to include that part of the story that, I actually reached out to my mother and she reached out to my grandmother and let my grandmother know. And my grandmother said, okay, forget all of that. You're going to come stay with me. You know, like you, you have a place here, you know, if, if you need it. Um, But the thing was that my grandmother was, you know, she was going through a lot of health issues at the time. Um, So, you know, from even her own mobility was, was limited lot of chronic health issues so and over the years she has just been put through so much stress because she you know she was a primary caretaker of a lot of her grandchildren you know and if not the primary caretaker you know definitely the co-caretaker in a lot of ways like she had a lot of responsibilities through her through her life over those you know 60 years that she had been on earth at that time and so here's another responsibility of you know you know, your grandson is is in a significant place of need right now. And, you know, as who she was, the type of person she was, you know, she didn't blink an eye, you know, the first thing she said, you know, he's going to come here. And what that allowed was, you know, the story we were able to, you know, actually tell the state of Illinois was that, you know, so I just got in contact with my grandmother and I went straight to her house. And from there, you know, I, I remained with my grandmother for the next
0: three years of my life
1: until I, I did go on at the age of 16 to live on my own. And so for my final two years of high school, I lived, though, you know, I lived independently on my own.
0: Tell me about that. How was, how was that living at 16 in Chicago by yourself? Liberating, liberating in, um
1: in a grand number of ways, because I think the assumption that most people will have is that is not a responsibility placed on a 16 year old. That's, you know, how can a 16 year old, Like, it's it's no way, like, who was watching you? Somebody had to be moderating you or something. But, you know, no, you know, I had, you know, had enough understanding, like, had enough experience with these past placements of all the things that had been done wrong with me, all the people who never felt like, you know, they should listen to what I want. I now was in position
0: to enact,
1: like, what I wanted. You know, I was able to make my own decisions, and be my own person for the first time in my life. Um, and so, with that, it becomes a lot of excitement, obviously. But it's also this balance of you—you've now seen the results of like people making bad decisions for so long that you know you're encouraged to make good decisions. Like that was that was always a sort of something that was in the back of my mind is. Once I'm in the driver's seat, I'm going to drive this this thing. Like, I'm going to drive this, like a NASCAR driver, like professional, you know, it. once I'm in this driver's seat, I'm not going to crash this vehicle. Um, and so it, it's kind of like with with a lot of freedom comes a lot of responsibility, right? And that's, that's something that I recognize literally from day one when I moved in my apartment and I'm, li- and I'm looking out at the apartment and I'm, there by myself I'm like wow I can do whatever I want whatever I want right now I could do it it's most people would assume that it's like yeah that that's the kid that's gonna go and do crazy stuff you know once they're sort of there are no kind of limits to what they can do but actually for me it was the exact opposite and I think you know it, it kind of I think it's it's sort of a it, it does beg the question of like do we um do we have enough faith in our youth actually you know to make good decisions and if we yeah. taught them the right way that um even at the at, at the age as young as 16 that they're old enough um to make good decisions and I was sort of proof even if you want to call me an outlier I don't think that you know I was an outlier as much but if, if you want to take it that way and say I'm an outlier but still as an outlier I'm proof that um. You know, I d I don't think sometimes we give we put enough faith in our youth, um and, and give them enough credit to make their, their own decisions. I think the assumption is that it's way too many parents out there and way too many folks within society who actually want to protect the youth and, you know, restrict them with the belief that if I give you this freedom, if I allow you to make your own decisions, you're gonna make bad ones.
0: Um Yeah, and I agree. So, I agree, me, I agree yeah. with that, man. I you're no, you're right. It's just like Well, it's funny because yeah that that contrary thought is that oh yeah if i just if i coddle them if i keep them safe they'll be ready when they get out but the reality is like you you really were in a 16 year old's body but you probably had the mind of a 25 year old because you had 10 to whatever 13 years of experience whether they're good bad or indifferent experiences really just how to live and and what people were doing and choices and stuff where most people don't have that so you were probably a lot more mature in that regard, so even though you were sixteen, yeah you were probably well well enough to live on your own more than others, so um yeah, I ready heard, to yeah. And, yeah ready to hit the ground running, so yeah. literally
1: from day one i um that summer, I turned seventeen and I hit the ground running, and thinking about the type of city that Chicago is, this is something that I didn't have an understanding of in, in, until hindsight, but it was such a great place to to be young and kind of be able to explore because there are so many things to actually do. Once, once you have that freedom to explore and be open, you know, that's when the world sort of opens up. That's when you can actually leverage the global city that Chicago is. But I I think that's not a narrative that you hear a lot when it comes to, you know, low-income youth or marginalized, whatever phrase you kind of want to use to describe, you know, living in a place like the south side of chicago it's it's the opposite you know it tends to a city like chicago tends to have so many negative conversations put on it but in reality it's such a great place it's such a great place to be young because the if if you have freedom one of the things you'll never say is it's boring or i don't have anything to do or there are no options here like you know that's that was the exact opposite Once once i was handed the keys there was so many places to drive there was so many things to see do explore i um, and grow from um and so that's exactly what i did
0: well so tell me about tell me about and i think you you started with million dollar scholar How, where did that idea originate from tell me a little bit about the the genesis of that
1: so million dollar scholar started you know literally that day that i moved in i, I would say if you, if you Kind of going at the the exact genesis of it. It really started the day that I moved in from, you know, the apartment on my own, you know, and there was there was I, you know, able to make my own decisions. Shortly thereafter, I started thinking about what's next for me, you know. Um, two years of high school left. Do I want to go on to college beyond this? And if I do want to, where do I want to go? Like what what are some of my options? So. Just from a standpoint of exploring my options, I actually hadn't made a decision yet about what was next for me um, because it was just so many options on the table that it's like I could do anything. So let me just do some research and explore. And um, as I started exploring the option of college, the first thing that I looked at, right, was money. That was the very first thing I thought about. I thought about nothing else. I'm like, I want to see how much this endeavor would cost. Um, and I started looking at some of the numbers. and um, It was just fascinating. I was blown away by these numbers that I was seeing, and this was two thousand and seven, by the way, right? So we're 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 twelve years ahead on this, and you can imagine what the numbers are looking like today. Um, And this was you know twelve years ago. I'm looking at these numbers, and they were ridiculous numbers. I saw I was seeing numbers no less than twenty five thousand dollars a year, even in state, right? Even if I was stayed in the state of Illinois, and so. For me, it 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 was like once college became the goal. Once I made the decision to say, okay, I'm going to do this. This is this is a part of my future. Like finances were the first question I knew that I needed to answer,
0: and that's exactly
1: what I did. I'm like, I will. I refuse to pay. I don't have the money. I, I, if I want to do this, I'm going to have to find a way to make it happen. And so I became so adamant about that. That in that journey, by the time I became a senior. You know, I I prepped myself. I did a lot of work to put myself in a position to be successful at acquiring scholarships. Not knowing what that would lead to in the future, just knowing that you know what the goal I wanted was to you know have a full ride to go to college. I ended up before graduating high school, I won over a million dollars in scholarships, 1.1 $1. 1 million to be exact. And you know. Of course, there were so many, you know, different kind of stories that emerged out of that experience, right? Once that hit national media, it, it kind of became a thing on its own. Um, and, you know, it became obvious to me that this was information that a lot of youth don't have upon graduation, right? That high schools, you know, and this is something that I tell parents anytime I go across the country and I'm I'm talking with them, I'm saying that. You know high schools aren't set up to help you know to help your child know how to pay for college that's not the goal like they're they're not there to you know we're looking to make sure that if we're preaching you know college 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 that we're also ensuring that every youth who comes out of our our school can pay for it that's not it's it's really just a we're here to prepare you for college that's it that's that's what the college preparatory curriculum is all about. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a positive thing. But on the flip side, I think that's a negative thing. If, we, if we're if we setting our youth up, telling them, this is the goal. This is, you know, if you don't go get this thing, your life is going to be terrible, right? You're, you're not going to have access to the opportunities you want. So you have to do this thing. But, you know, the only way for them to do it is to go into debt. I refuse that i refuse that model i I think that model needs to be um revisited and it should have never been the model right um and now we're at a point in time where you know we can't go back and change you know what we did during the 2000s and 2010 Um, but as we move to 2020 and beyond that has to be the standard from henceforth that if we're going to preach college we also have to make sure without a shadow of a doubt that it's financially accessible particularly for students who have grown up in environments where finances have been an issue their whole life. Right? Like, so um that that was that was sort of the that's how Million Dollar Scholar emerged was really from that experience, my own personal experience of being successful at acquiring scholarships. Um being able to go off to Morehouse College full ride, not having to worry about money during my time there at least for paying for school and not having to worry about money, and just how liberating that was as well, how much that really allowed me to focus on myself, focus on my schooling. I really enjoyed college. I truly had the chance to enjoy it and soak up all the fruits of that experience in a way that if I had to worry about money or money was like, you know, the, the number one concern in my mind, there was no way I could have had the experience that I had while I was there. So I wanted to make sure that was accessible to as many youth as possible across America, particularly those that are low income or those who are marginalized in some way
0: financially. Is, is there anything, and and again, you don't have to go too deep on this, go as deep as you want, but on uh, any low hanging fruit for folks out there listening that maybe are looking to get scholarships or, or help, you know, kind of pay for college, anything in particular you'd guide them to, to at least get started in that process?
1: Definitely. It's a definitely a low-hanging fruit, um, a platform that I promote consistently. It's a platform that I use um, successfully throughout my process at scholarships.com, www.scholarships.com. Very simple, um, easy to remember. You can't really forget it. And um, that's one of the things to sort of get started in terms of, okay, what opportunities are out there? When, it, when it's time to search and find scholarships, where do you go? That's a, that's a great resource. And a second resource um, that has, you know, that is growing in prominence and that, you know, I'm a big advocate of as well, Um it's the application technology is Scholarly.com. So www.scholly.s c h o l l y dot com. Um, they they also have a great tool in terms of searching and finding scholarships. So those those are what I would, if you, if you're phrasing it like low hanging fruit, I think those are great places to start. But um for anybody who happens to come across um you know this podcast experience, I would definitely say, prepare early The culture is not one where we are preparing youth from the day they hit high school to think about what the next step is. you know that's you know that to me, if I was building a school and you know what my curriculum and what my model will be built around will be definitely from day one we're thinking about what the next step is what what are we going beyond this and so that includes thinking about how you would finance that next step or whatever that is, whether that's going to be trade school education, whether that's going to be community college, whether that's going to be a four-year, right? Making sure that you're prepared to pay for those opportunities. Um, of those types of education, those, you know, um, higher education, generally the four-year schooling is going to be the most expensive. So I feel like if, if four-year college is going to be the thing that we're, Promoting the most, or saying that you know this is the gold standard type of thing, then you know we need to be doing more work around how to prepare youth early. So that's what I would say to parents and students alike: is by your sophomore year, you should be thinking about how you're going to pay for college, if that's the goal. If college is the goal, which it is not for everybody, nor is it right for everybody, but if that is something you desire and think is right for you, then by sophomore year you need to be thinking about it. Not by senior year when you're applying to college like if you're if you do it that way you're literally so behind um, in the likelihood of you making college affordable if, if that's your timeline it, it becomes much lower so those those would be the two things that I would
0: stress and so give me a little insight on and if I'm pronouncing is it bro capital is that right that you're doing now with uh that you had started yes. so tell me yes. a little bit about that um, because because I'm assuming at least from what you shared before you've kind of seen these struggles, especially a lot of the stuff with um, in Chicago and the things you grew up with. Is that, is that what the mission was behind starting that and kind of getting behind that, um, that business?
1: Interestingly enough, bro capital emerged out of the experience my co-founder and I had with million dollars Scholars. So, you know, so much of this is really just about the interconnections of, you know, different narratives along, you know, the life journey for, for myself. So, the first company that I started right out of college was Million Dollar Scholars. I, you know, didn't go into corporate America, didn't go straight to grad school. I knew from jump I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I had a a great business that was already generating revenue while I was in college that I could, you know, potentially scale up and grow. And so um, right out of college, first title, co-founder and CEO of Million Dollar Scholar, and we hit the ground running and didn't look back, my co-founder and I. But, in the experience of founding a company, it's sort of like we we got exposed to an entirely new culture that we weren't you know aware of or privy to before college or during high school and that is the world of you know venture capital, the world of uh, the startup culture um, and it's you know it's a few other phrases that you might use um, but once we sort of got exposed and the you know the curtains kind of got pulled back on. What that culture is, and you know what some of the, I guess, standards in that world are. It it became quickly aware that this whole thing was not built for us. That you know, however you want to put it, it's being very explicit. Wasn't built by black people. Wasn't built for black people. So if you're a black person, particularly if you're young and black, right, fresh out of college, you know, little financial capital to your name and you're entering this world, you're entering it at such a disadvantage. Like, you are behind the eight ball in so many ways um, that you wouldn't be aware of it until you're in it. You you don't enter it knowing that you're disadvantaged. It's not until you have multiple interactions with, with different entities, whether that be venture capital firms, angel investors, um, accelerator programs, so on and so forth, you know, We met so many people during those first three years of building Million Dollar Scholar. We traveled all across the country, even, you know, to to across the world as well, and just got to shake so many hands, meet so many different people, and many of them were great people, with amazing people. Um, But a lot of these people were terrible people. There's no other way to put it, I'm sorry, but being objective, um, I I would have to describe a lot of these folks as terrible people from the standpoint that like if we're purely judging it on character right we're not judging it off of what your resume is and what success you've obtained or what status you have in terms of you know um the riches that you've been able to accumulate so on and so forth but judging it purely off the basis of how you view the world and you know your character like how you treat people what's your view of people um, so many of these people were were just terrible. And it, it just fascinated us, like, why why are we having such a difficult time in this industry? Why are we, you know, like, we're doing a lot of the things that would equate to success, you know, for anyone else. Why is it so hard for us, you know, um, to find the ladders that we need to, you know, climb up? And what we found is that um, so much of that had to do with race. So much of that had to do with class. That it was like we could either keep trying to climb, you know, within this structure, or we need to build something for ourselves, right? That can go against this, that can counteract what we've been exposed to and seen so much. Once the curtains were pulled behind uh, the, the culture of this industry, and that's that's really what real capital was, right? Um, the idea that um, one of the reasons why black people find it so hard to raise venture capital and, and currently the statistics are that you know only 1% of the venture capital raised right within the last decade has been at the hands of you know a, a black executive or a black founder one of the reasons that is is because the black people have to go to other races other cultures to ask for the money we can't we we, we aren't able to go to our own culture right, to secure the capital that we need to build the ventures that we want to build and to create the impact that we want to create. So that asymmetry in and of itself is a problem that we have to address. But once you do the root cause analysis and you try to understand why there aren't pools of capital owned by Black people, Latino people, so on and so forth, you come to understand that it's it's bigger than just, oh, you know. These pools of capital don't exist, or so we don't have access to the capital. It's the fact that, you know, fi- from a financial wellness standpoint, you know, Black people are doing the absolute worst in America than any other group. um And then when we dug deeper into the research and really parsed it back, and, and we're purely looking at, you know, modern day, right? So, contemporary right now, the analysis would actually be that Black men in particular are doing the absolute worst of any group in America in terms of, you know, financial wellness, right? Um, and just financial state of being. Um, and that fascinated us. And, you know, being black men, we felt that, you know, not only is this um, something that we we feel like we're personally invested in and have to do something about, but on the flip side, we also feel like we're the ones in the best position to do something about it. And, you know, if you do a, I guess, an economic analysis of it, it's like, wow, you know, we have a competitive advantage. We're black men. We, we know we have insights that nobody else has around how to create a business model to go about solving these problems. So why not do it? And that's, that, was, that was it. It, it, was, it was a no-brainer type of thing. We have the competitive advantage. Nobody else even sees this as a problem worthy of creating a business model around. Right. So um,
0: yeah, by, I- inherently
1: by doing this, we're going to be doing something innovative and doing something extremely impactful. So that, that's that's really the narrative of Bro Capital and how it started.
0: No, that's really neat. Yeah, it looks like a lot of the things you are doing again, you're trying to kind of help those underserved um, as you're talking about in a variety of different capacities. I have to ask this um, because this is what what is it like getting a call from the White House? that uh that you're gonna <laughs> that you that you want to go there because I'm I'm really that's just an awesome thing. Actually on my very, very short list of people I'd like to interview someday, uh President Obama's on there. Um so that is the fact that you got to meet him can you share that experience? I think that's just awesome.
1: Uh yeah, it was an amazing experience. Two thousand and fourteen um well actually two thousand and thirteen, not shortly after I graduated um from Morehouse. Um Obama was actually our graduation speaker at at White House that that year. So that was significant. Um, And, um, you know, about three months after him being the graduation speaker, I was getting an invite um, to the White House for the work that that I had done and continue to do, um, be a million-dollar scholar. And, um, yeah, you know, it's something to where it was – it was a it was a very pleasant surprise, but it was also something where, when it came through, I felt extremely worthy of it. And, and you know, um, from a from a very humble place, um, I knew exactly why I was getting the call. I knew exactly why I was being invited. And um, you know, I was I was definitely ready um, to meet them and engage with them because I felt like I had been prepared for it. Like this is this is what I've worked for. I've worked to you know. Take these folks' hands and to to be in the room, um, folks of, of this level of influence and power. Um, and when I got there, I didn't feel out of place at all. The White House was such a grand, you know, for, for for anyone who has never been there. At least, particularly, you know, in the in the deep halls of the White House, right? Like, I got the chance to actually sit in the president's library and and see what books were on the wall and go to the bathroom and and see, you know, (laughs) um, what, what material the counter and and the sink is made out of. And it's, it's, um, it's quite beautiful. It's quite nice. Um, so it's, it's to a level of elegance that, you know, um, if somebody described it to you, 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 it, it might not translate, you just might just have to see it and experience it. Um, I felt very at home there, you know, and didn't feel out of place at all. And I, I think that to some degree that kind of runs counter to how a lot of us feel, can feel sometimes in those types of environments where it feels, I think sometimes we, we're we more inclined to question, like, why me? Or, you know, imposter syndrome is like, is a, is a concept that I think is floating around a lot these days, um, I personally never really had that problem. It's never been something where in those type of environments I feel out of place at all. Um, In a lot of ways, I think, you know, it it is like, what am I doing here? Like, yeah, you know, if if somebody heard who I was at 16 years old, who would have thought that I would end up here? You know, nobody would have imagined that this would be a part of my narrative. But to me, that just makes it that much more amazing um and i i think it it validates that concept of never judge a book by its cover or never judge somebody for where they are in the present moment because it's next to impossible to know wh- who that person can be in 10 years um so
0: yeah that that's a phenomenal thought and that's a good place to you know i know we both had a limited time for today can we call this part 1 I would love to have you back on uh, <laughs> down the road a little wonderful, bit. and, and, and share the, the second half because there's so much more to tell. Um, yeah, man, this was this was awesome though to have you on and at least share. I think that's a that's a good kind of mic drop moment there. That last tip, which <laughs> the advice to share. So, dude, man, I appreciate you ha- being on here. Like I said, we we'll sync up if you're open to it and uh, and do it. Uh, you know, another part two, kind of maybe uh, maybe later on this summer or something like that because this was pretty cool. Well, I look forward to it, and that, that makes me feel special. Uh, so thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks, everyone, for listening through that interview with Darius. Um, really enjoyed the conversation with him. I hate that we had to cut it short. Um, it's just the, the times that we had um, slotted, and I know he had to run to another meeting as well as I did. So um, it was cool to get him on, and I hope you guys enjoyed that part of his story and excited to have him back down the road um, because we will talk about you know some of the things he's doing now a little bit more in depth. And, uh, and where he sees, you know, his journey kind of taking him. So excited for the, uh, for the future conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And, um, you know, any feedback you have, any insight, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. You know, you can always find me on Instagram at Brianondraco Shoot over to my website, um uh, Send me a note, Brianondraco at gmail.com. But look forward to uh, conversing with you guys online. Hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Just get started.